coach, teacher, podcaster, online business owner, and above all, I am constantly dreaming up ways to reimagine education. I provide teachers with tips, tricks, and strategies to transform their classrooms into learning hubs that are filled with creativity, innovation, and discovery. I hope to empower all teachers, no matter what subject they teach, to experiment with innovative learning models and lead their classrooms with 21st century skills. So let's learn and grow together as 21st century educators. This is the EdTech Classroom Podcast. Today's episode is with Chris Lehman, founding principal and CEO of the Science Leadership Academy in Philadelphia and the Science Leadership Academy Schools Network. Chris and his entire network of schools are transforming the field of education. And I just know that you're going to love Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the EdTech Classroom podcast. Today, I am sitting here on Zoom with Chris Lehman. Chris is the founding principal and CEO of the Science Leadership Academy and the Science Leadership Academy Schools Network, which is a network of three progressive science and technology schools in Philadelphia. The Science Leadership Academy is an inquiry-driven, project-based, one-to-one laptop school that is considered to be one of the pioneers of the School 2.0 movement nationally and internationally. SLA is also the Dell Computing Center of Excellence for Technology in Education. Chris has an incredibly impressive background in education and in tech. He's won a number of awards like the McGraw Prize in Education, Digital Principal of the Year, and just so much more. He's been called one of the 30 most influential people in ed tech, one of the most, uh, one of the hundred most inspiring people changing the world using technology and social media. And he's even been honored by the White House as a champion for change. It really goes without saying, but I'm so grateful and excited to have Chris on the show today. Chris, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, so we chatted a little bit before we started recording, and you said that you are in Philly right now, uh, which is where your network of schools is located, and you're working from home. I'm still working from home, too. I don't know if you feel this way, but this, I'm actually, probably everybody feels this way, but this school year has been um, pretty crazy. I noticed that your son was in the background. Do you have, um, do you have a bunch of kids? I have two boys, and uh, both of them are in SLA schools. Uh, Jacob is a junior at SLA Center City, which is the first school we started in school that I'm still the day-to-day principal of, and Theo is an eighth grader at SLA Middle School. He's downstairs right now, and he heard me say that, so he said, yes, I am. So. <laughs> I love that, and I love that your kids go to SLA schools, too. Um, is that an interesting experience being a principal and then also having kids going through the school themselves? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, yes, uh, there's, uh, it's something really wonderful actually when you see the model working for your own kids is really amazing. I think it also is incredibly informative, um, you know, in school in general. I mean, I think teachers, principals, everybody, you know, like 
who is both educator and parent sees um, that which is invisible to the day-to-day -day school, right? Because you see home. And that's an important lens. And it's an important lens, I think, for us as educators to understand that um, there is a whole life kids lead outside of school. And, you know, those of us who are lucky enough to be parents see that firsthand with our own children. And while we should not extrapolate our children's experience to all children's experiences, we also should not miss the opportunity to think about how what we see as parents can influence the way we think about the work that we do as educators as well. So I think it is, um, yeah, it's incredibly informative. And then, um, you know, the funny thing is, I mean, even just last night, I was talking with my son about one of his teachers and a class that's hard. And, you know, I was like, look, Jake, you know, this teacher really cares. Like, you just gotta, you know, like, here's some strategies, here's whatever. And, you know, he said, dad, I know he cares. I've known him since I was six years old, which was, you know, just kind of funny, you know, like, you know, and, and just this kind of fun moment where it's like this realization that, you know, this sort of, I mean, I know this to be true intellectually, but there's all these fun moments where like the fact that my son has grown up around the school, we opened it when Theo was, brand, was a baby baby, like literally the school opened when Theo was a month old and Jacob was two. So he really has grown up, you know, both of them have grown up in these schools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think that in the past few months, you know, a lot of people have begun thinking more and more about how the home environment does impact schools since we are in this period of remote learning right now. Um, but it's interesting to hear that this is something that you've actually experienced for um, a long time. And, you know, I, I know a lot of teachers and a lot of principals, their children do go to the schools that they work at. But I think you have a very interesting perspective because you actually created this school. So in a lot of ways, it's your baby, right? In addition to your own children actually having, you know, going to school there, this school you're, that you've actually created is also is also yours. Yep, absolutely. You know, we've talked a little bit clearly. You started this school called the Science Leadership Academy. Could you tell your listeners about or could you tell our listeners about your background and your journey to starting the Science Leadership Academy? Sure. Um, you know, I, I mean, it's kind of funny. I mean, I was, you know, I am the child of education activists. My mom was a teacher. My dad was a union lawyer. Uh, I grew up with the idea that, you know, from as early as I can remember, the mantra in my house was the purpose of life is to make the world a little bit better because you happen to live in it for a little while. And teaching was always, for me, this wonderful form of grassroots activism where you could really see the impact you were making. And as a young teacher, uh, I only actually ever taught at one school. I taught for nine years at a great progressive public high school in Philadelphia called Beacon. And I got there when the first class were seniors. So I was really part of the early cohort of teachers at that school who helped make that school what it was. And, you know, so getting to be a young educator, I was 25 years old when I started there, um, who helped these two educators who founded that school and the group of educators that were there with all of us um, to help a group of educators sort of manifest their vision of what a school could be, I think, gave me the impetus to dream of what my own school could be. And I would say that the school that I worked at was 80% what I thought a school could be. And this 20% was always this loose tooth that I always kind of wanted to wiggle a little bit. And then, um, and literally from early on in my career as an educator, people were like, oh, you're going to start a school someday. You're going to start a school someday. 
And in New York, that was possible. Like you could dream that. And I think that just being in that kind of incubator of an environment where people were talking about new schools and talking about what school could be and all that was an incredibly sort of powerful experience for me as a young educator because it gave me license to dream. And then, you know, and I'm from Philadelphia. I went to college, I grew up outside of Philadelphia. I went to college inside Philadelphia. I always viewed it as home. And then in 2000 and I guess, you know, like January, 2005, um, the school district of Philadelphia put out a press release that got picked up by ASCD daily. That sort of news brief you get every day, if, you know, if you sign up for it, that Philadelphia to open up 27 new small schools. And I was, my wife and I were like starting to plan our exit of, of New York city. And I was like, let's, you know, like, let me see what it means to do this. And I put together a white paper uh, of what I thought a school could be. I called it the Philadelphia Academy of Teaching and Learning, which would have had the acronym PADDLE, which would have been awesome. Um, but, uh, and I just started shopping it to anybody who would listen. And, um, you know, in one of those meetings, you know, and, and literally I had one strategy, which was never take a meeting without knowing what your next meeting was. So at the end of any time somebody wanted to talk to me about what schools could be, I would say, great, who else should I meet? Who else should I meet? Who else should I meet? And uh, in one of those meetings, someone said to me, you know, you should talk to the folks at the Franklin Institute. They're talking with the district about starting a school. And this woman picked up the phone and she said, I've got this, she made a call. She said, I've got this kid here. He talks like you, do you have five minutes for him? And she got off the phone. She said, you're gonna walk over to the Franklin Institute right now. You're gonna take a meeting with this woman, Carol Parson, and she's a senior vice president there. She's got five minutes for you. So I walk over to the Franklin Institute, which is this very, very sort of well-known and august and esteemed science and technology museum here in Philadelphia. If you grew up in the Philadelphia region, you went on field trips to the Franklin Institute when you were a kid. It's, just, it's almost like a rite of passage. And I go up to their executive offices, which were very intimidating. And I had this packet that I was shopping and it had the white paper for the, pay for the school and my resume and some clippings from the work we were doing in New York City. And I walk into this woman's office, you know, I walk up to this woman's office, I knock on the door and this very, very, very elegant older woman comes to the door and she looks at me and she says, you have five minutes. Just like that, like total fear. <laughs> oh and I was, <laughs> you know, and so I handed her the packet. Yeah, it was a thing. And I handed her the packet. And the first thing she said to me was, what is an English teacher doing wanting to start a science and technology high school? And I said, well, the Franklin Institute doesn't just want to start a science high school. And she said, excuse me. And I said, look, you start a science high school. Remember, in my head, the, the clock is ticking. So I am talking 100 miles an hour, right? Like, this is like, I'm at full speed. And I said, look, if you start a science high school, you'll get great science and math teachers, but everybody else is going to feel like a second class citizen because their school's not going to be what, the, what the, their subject's not going to be what the school's about. If you start an inquiry driven high school where everything that is done is based on the pedagogy of how do we ask big questions and answer them, that's how you'll get great teachers in every subject. And of course, it's going to have an amazing science and math program. It's affiliated with the Franklin Institute. So that's the school you want to start is an inquiry driven high school, not just a science high school. And she said, keep talking. And five minutes turned into two and a half hours. And two and a half hours has turned into three schools and 15 years. And that's literally, you know, that was that key meeting at which, you know, all of the sudden, you know, stuff really, really shifted. Um, you know, and that that's, 
you know, that was really, you know, what happened. Wow, what an incredible story. You know, something that started off, you know, you early on in your career with so much energy and desire to dream big and reimagine education, then turned into this amazing network of schools. Um, you know, I know you mentioned that you worked at Beacon and a lot of your your work there informed what you were hoping to do with SLA. Uh, and I know you touched upon, um, you know, this idea of having inquiry driven schools. Um, could you could you provide a little bit more insight into what you actually put in this white paper, what your actual dream for schools um, looks like? Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is, is, is it's a lot like SLA. I mean, every couple of years I go find it down, like, you know, in a file somewhere and reread it and make sure that we're still on the path. But like, no, it was really about like starting a school with a lot of student agency um, that was built around what are the big questions we ask together as a community? How do we seek out answers to those big questions? How do we then build artifacts of our learning that serve as the answers to those questions? Um, how do we make school relevant and real to kids? How do we make school about the lives kids lead right now, not about just being good for you someday? And how do we make it experiential and real and meaningful and you know caring? Mm -hmm. And um, that's kind of what we did. So, I mean, that's the really fun part is like, you know, you read that paper that I literally wrote sitting in an apartment in New York City, you know, now 15 years ago. Um, and that's what we did, which is kind of amazing. And I actually think one of the real secrets to our success has been, uh, we've never taken a 90 degree turn away from our biggest, from away from our ideas, right? Like we've never made that sharp turn. We're like, oh, I guess it doesn't work in this subject, or I guess it doesn't work here. We've always said that like, there are challenges to any model. There's challenges to what we do, but the answer to the challenges is to get better at the model, right? Like not to turn away from it. And I think that's been a real secret to our success. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I just love hearing how it's such a mission-driven organization. I think even outside of the field of education, mission-driven organizations are something that I'm really passionate about. Um, I think that's really how you can have um, big impact. Um, and it's neat to hear too that you're thinking back to, you know, yourself 15 years ago, still today and thinking about, you know, when I had this big idea, how did I, um, you know, how am I still able to uh, continue on the mission and the goals that I had from when I started this? So I think that that's um, a really, a really interesting perspective to hear. Um, you know, I obviously SLA has grown a lot. Um, and I know that you said that you do still incorporate um, a lot of the core, the core pillars, and that's why it's, it's been successful. Um, but could you describe for our listeners, uh, in what ways has SLA actually grown? Um, you know, I know you're a network of schools. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, so my goodness, I think it was eight years ago now. Uh, you know, it, it, it was just getting ridiculous in that we were, you know, we're a magnet school and we interview our kids and we were doing a thousand interviews for 125 seats in the freshman class. And our model was never built on exclusivity. It was built on sort of kids wanting the model. And it was just getting ridiculous. And we had more kids that we could serve and who wanted to come. And we knew that we could do this again. And um, 
I have a very dear friend in Philadelphia who was one of my colleagues in the principalship. He ran uh, another high school and he had recently gone to central office and realized he didn't, he needed to be in a building and needed to be a, a school principal. And he and I had talked for a long time about like, you know, he'd said to me for years, when are you going to make the second SLA? When are you going to make the second SLA? And so it literally happened over winter break. I was working on admissions and I was just getting really frustrated that we had all these amazing kids and no schools and, we, and not a big enough school. And I called him up. I said, all right, you ready? And he was like, yeah, let's go. And so then I called our superintendent of schools, Dr. Bill Height, and said, we, you know, I really would love the opportunity to, to build a second SLA. I think we have the capacity to do so. I think you've got somebody in central office who would be the perfect founding principal. And he was like, yeah, let's make that happen. And, you know, the crazy thing was, is that like, and he was like, when should we do this? And I was like, September. And he was like, great. And I was like, oh, wait, you're serious. Uh, so we, you know, stood up a second school. And I called, actually, I should also state, um, I called a former SLA teacher, a woman named Diana Laufenberg, who had left SLA, who came to, to moved to Philadelphia, promised me she would work for us, work for SLA for four years, but she was not a city person, but she wanted to do that for four years and learn everything she could. And she did, and then she was consulting. And after she left us and moved back to Wisconsin, where she's from, and I, you know, and we were talking about starting a nonprofit and doing different things and trying to spread the work that we were doing. And I called her up and I said, hey, I just talked to Chris Johnson and I just talked to Bill Height. And I think we should start a second SLA. She was like, great, when? And I said, September. She said, what September? I said, next September. She said, are you crazy? And I said, yeah. <laughs> and that also gave birth to the, uh, that was sort of the genesis moment of the nonprofit inquiry schools that I was the founding chair of the board for, that uh, Diana was the founding and is still the executive director of, um, and that that inquiry schools does this kind of work on school transformation and school startup all over the country now. They're working with a bunch of schools in Cleveland right now. They're doing all this incredible work and Diana leads that work. So um, that's how we got SLA Bieber off the ground and SLA Bieber is now a 512, so it's a middle high. And then I would say a couple of years later, um, we were in a meeting, actually Diana and I both were in a meeting with uh, Drexel University's um, uh, provost, I forget what her title is, but super dean provost something of community engagement, a woman by the name of Lucy Kerman. And she was like, we wanna start a middle school in the neighborhood because we think that there really needs to be, we've got a great elementary school. Um, but we need a middle school in the neighborhood. And we, you know, we want to talk to you about starting SLA middle school in the neighborhood. And we said, great, let's do it. And we got that project off the ground. And now that's a five to eight. So we've got, as of right now in Philadelphia, we have about 1700 kids in the SLA model, um, which is kind of amazing. So, and the cool thing is, is like, we've scaled up and down the grades. So we now have five through 12 all, and we know the model works. And you know, there's some different things you got to do for middle school kids than high school kids, but this sort of core, again, the core values, the core tenants, the core structures are common across all of the net, you know, all the schools in the network, which is really amazing. And it's really been this very, very um, uh, thoughtful framework, which has allowed us to scale the model to three schools. Hmm. Wow. It, it's so neat to hear how you've been able to um, to scale this. I'm also really interested in something you said about how, um, you know, the desire to expand largely stemmed from students 
being really interested in this model. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'd imagine that in addition to students, um, you know, a, a teacher who's really interested in this model is probably really likely to be someone who would thrive at SLA. Um, so could you describe in a little bit more detail what type of student um, you feel like thrives at SLA, what type of teacher thrives there, not just, you know, somebody who's excited about this model, um, but a little bit more specific. Sure. I mean, I think that, you know, students who are really excited to drive their learning do very well. Um, students who, are, who expect school to be done to them, which sadly is how we do school in a lot of places, um, those students, uh, you know, if you want a very, very traditional education, that's not us. We tend to be a little bit louder, louder and noisier and messier uh, than traditional school. But I think that most kids actually, when they're exposed to the model, this is the kind of learning they're excited to do. So I think that this is definitely a model that can be for all children. Um, we have really had a lot of success. We believe deeply that this model has got to be accessible to all. So it doesn't matter if you have an IEP or if you're an English language learner. Um, we've had great success with students um, who learn differently. Um, you know, I think if your idea, you know, I mean, for kids, you know, and again, and then we're also, we're very lucky. We're in Philadelphia where there's a million different models of schools. So if you're a kid who you want your high school to be, I've got 17 different AP classes and that's how I'm going to define my college experience. We're not for you, but that's okay. Um, if you want a great big, huge high school with 2000 kids and, you know, every diversity of course load possible where like you can take a philosophy elective and a this elective and a that elective. We're not quite able to offer the kind of like sort of like just the range of courses. Like our, our model is really built around the idea that we do fewer things, but what we do, we do very, very, very well. Um, so, you know, if you're looking for, to be able to take like, you know, all kinds of crazy, funky, different classes, we might not quite fit that model as well, although, you know, we give kids the opportunity to take classes at colleges and things like that. But if you're looking for a unifying experience where there's a really deep sense of community and a deep framework of learning, I think kids do very, very and, and a real sense of agency and ownership within those classes of how you can take your studies and where you can take your studies. I think that's something, you know, kids really thrive in. Um, so there really is a deep sense of like what it means to be an SLA student that's pretty powerful. Um, and, you know, and then for teachers, I would say um, the teachers that do the best at SLA understand that their best lesson plan is jazz, not classical, right? Like you gotta be a little bit nimble. I um, love that. <laughs> if you think like, hey, what's that? I, I love that. I'm gonna steal that phrase, I think. <laughs> yeah, please do. Please do. Um, you know, this idea that like, you know, a unit plan is a framework. And then the students get to play with the notes, right? Like, and your job as teacher is to create these really powerful opportunities for kids to then own the learning in really meaningful ways, your ability to facilitate, your ability to uh, learn alongside your kids, then your ability to understand uh, fundamentally the difference between care about and care for, right? Like teachers all over the, you know, all over the world care about their kids but you need systems and structures that enable teachers to care for their kids and you know and take care of them. And we want teachers who understand that like, um, we always teach the student in front of us before we teach our subjects and we, and we need no matter what our situation is as teachers to see the whole child in front of us. 
and really take care of them. I think that student-centered learning really lends itself to educating the whole child. Um, I think so much learning, and I'm obviously you guys know this, but so much learning I think comes from leaning into student interests. Um, you know, and I know that I know that you're saying teachers can learn alongside their students, and that it sounds like in some ways there's a lot of flexibility in shaping the curriculum to the students. Um, but of course, there are things like standards and benchmarks that students do need to be making. So how do you sort of recommend that teachers strike that balance? How much flexibility do they actually have uh, in creating their cur- curriculum? How much does it change year to year? Stuff like that. Um, you know, I mean, I think they there's a lot. And, um, you know, the difference is, is, you know, meeting standards, you know, especially if you're talking about like, you know, the NGSS standards, or you're talking about literacy standards or math standards, those are really frameworks that are, that can be filled with content in different ways. Um, So how we create the conditions by which kids have the opportunity to own their exploration of these big topics and these big standards is is the secret sauce, right? Like, you know, do you trudge them through the curriculum? You know, like if it's Tuesday, we must be in Belgium kind of style. Or do you create the opportunity for inquiry at all times? And, you know, it's the difference between, you know, like here is the math, do the math, and, you know, a notion of how do you apply the mathematics? It's the difference between like, here is, okay, we're all gonna learn how to read, or we're all gonna learn, you know, this text and, you know, author intent and blah, 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 or we're gonna use these texts that we read together as lenses to answer bigger questions around the human condition and things like that and our world around us and these big questions that we kind of want to play in. And that's where you can use thematic learning, that's where you can use essential questions and big ideas and things like that to create a framework for learning that allows for kids to take a lot more ownership even if it is, it's not like it's not like it's all like all all free, let's all go learn. It's it that's what a thoughtful unit plan does is it creates the scaffolds by which kids can learn a topic and to learn a lot about an idea, but still have the opportunity to own that in the way that they craft the learning, in the way that they ask the questions, in the parts of the topic that they want to then explore and go deeper on and all of these things. And you're still, you know, and the beautiful thing about most of these standards um, is they're pretty broad. You know, and so that allows for a lot of um, opportunity to individualize and a lot of opportunity for kids to own it in in ways that they find meaningful to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think what you just explained really gets at one of the main missions of my podcast. I think that something I hear from teachers a lot and, you know, teachers are so creative and that really goes without saying, but I think it can be really difficult to feel um, confined to these standards and feel like you have to teach in a very specific way in order to sort of teach to the test. But I think that what you just described is a really great example on how you can still, you know, incorporate standards and core competencies into an inquiry-based learning model or a project-based learning model. Um, So it's neat to hear that that's something that you guys have really figured out uh, because I think a lot of people in education have been talking about this in theory for a really long time, uh, but it's neat to hear an example of somebody who's actually executing this and proving that it works in practice. Um, so it's it's neat to hear your perspective in that way. Um, and you know, I I talked about my sort of my mission for my podcast, and obviously another one of my missions is 
related to tech since this is called the EdTech Classroom Podcast. Um, and when I was you know, learning more about you online, I saw that in a number of interviews, you've noted that tech should be ubiquitous and that we should stop talking about it. Now, as somebody in ed tech, I love this. I love this thought. Could you describe a little bit more for our listeners who might not know what you mean, um, what you actually mean by this and how, um, you know, more specifically, how does SLA incorporate technology into their curriculum without making it sort of the central focus point? Yeah, I mean, so the what we like to say is that technology needs to be ubiquitous, necessary, and invisible. It's got to be everywhere. It's got to be part of everything you do, and then you got to stop talking about it so much, right? Now, obviously, in this moment in time, we're talking about it a little bit more just because we're all pivoting to it, you know, being our full-time sort of interface, which I think has both sort of allowed a lot of people to explore the promise of it, but also very much the limitations of it. Like, I think for most of us, and not for everybody, but for most of us, um, students and teachers, we've all realized, okay, great, we can learn this way, but my goodness, we're going to revalue what we get out of face-to-face -face when we all come back, right? Like, which I think is really important to think about. But I think the idea that of ubiquitous, necessary, invisible is this idea that technology is a tool to facilitate the learning. It is not the learning itself, right? The goal is not to learn Zoom. The goal is to leverage Zoom so we can learn about 20 different other things, right? And you know, the goal is not to be like, ooh, I can make a Google slide. The difference is I want to be able to present my ideas in powerful, meaningful ways. And I think in all of these things, that's the point, right? What does the technology enable? Now, there is a subset of stuff, like for our kids who want to be computer scientists, for our kids who want to do filmmaking, for our kids who want to do different things, that there are tools that we do want kids to be able to go deep and master. But even then it's to do a thing, which, and I think that's the, that's the key piece is like, what does the technology allow us to do differently? What does the technology allow us to do in a deeper way, a richer way and more meaningful way, um, you know, or just a different way? And how do we find that? How do we allow, how do we say that technology in our schools can leverage, we can leverage this technology in our schools to serve a specific pedagogy? Right, and I think that's the key piece that a lot of times people miss, right? They're like, ooh, it's technology, let's use technology. If it's technology, it must be good. And that's really not necessarily true. We've seen some really bad uses of technology in schools, right? And it's like, if the most amazing thing you can envision, all of these tools that we have at our disposal is to sort of recreate the worksheet online, like shame on you, right? Cause like, that's a failure. That's an epic failure. Um, you know, that is not, you know, I mean, Khan Academy is essentially a slightly updated version of film strips and multiple choice tests. Like, I'm not impressed. We've been doing that for a really, really, really long time. And it wasn't all that interesting then. And it's not all that interesting now. The breadth of it, the library of it is cool. The on-demandedness of it is cool. But like, that's not all that new. And it's not all that good. So like, how do we leverage these tools towards a specific pedagogical end that is about agency and empowerment and kids being able to do things to a wider audience to a greater degree to a more expansive access to knowledge and information and wisdom a more expansive um, access to a network of people who can push their learning and given that expansive network given the sheer amount of information how are we thinking critically about trying to teach kids to be unbelievably critical consumers of their world 
right? Because there's a lot of really bad stuff out there right now. I mean, all you got to do is look at the fact that, you know, we have uh, a president in the White House who actively, who social media now has to label his tweets as conspiracy theories <laughs> and not true and lies and what have you. And if we're not thinking critically about how we in schools are leveraging this technology in such a way that we are helping kids to become more thoughtful, critical consumers and producers of information, we will have missed an unbelievably important uh, window of opportunity into the health of not only our students, but of our country and our democracy. And that's how big, that's how important this moment we're in right now is. And that's the, the unbelievably challenging and important and um, uh, uh, vital task that we in schools have when it comes to looking at how the use of these tools in a ubiquitous fashion, not just in school, but in society, forces us to think critically about the questions kids ask and about the way they seek out answers to those questions, right? We've never had a moment in time when students have had ubiquitous access to the world in the way that they do now, not just students, but adults too, where there is literally ubiquitous access to information and disinformation and misinformation and how we are teaching kids to critically analyze their world and their sources has never been more important than the moment we are living in now. Yeah, I, I could not agree more with everything you just said. Um, you know, this that's really the main reason why I wanted to get into the ed tech space in general. I think you, you make a really great point that tech is inevitable. It's going to exist. It exists everywhere. It's there all the time. And so if we can figure out ways to help our students, you know, figure out how to use technology as critical thinkers, as activists, have them, you know, build healthy relationships with technology, I think we're going to have a much um, better future. And then, you know, I think going back a few minutes, I think you, you were sort of talking about um, this idea that teachers, um, you know, should really be focusing on uh, their actual learning goals rather than the tool itself. And that's something that um, really speaks to me as an ed tech coach. I get emails from teachers all the time saying, you know, I want to try this new tool or this one sounds awesome. Should I try, you know, Flipgrid or Padlet for this? And really it's about, um, you know, reframing your thinking and figuring out how you can, um, you know, put the learning goal first and then use technology as a way to actually amplify that learning. Um, so basically I could not agree with what <laughs> more with what you just said. Um, so I know that we're getting sort of short on time here. So I just have a couple more questions uh, for things that I want to touch upon. Um, so, you know, you mentioned you just gave a little bit of advice about how we can help uh, our students become you know, better digital citizens uh, and how we can prepare them for a world you know, beyond the walls of our classrooms. I still feel a little bit iffy about that phrase because I think the world is happening around students all the time. Um, but what advice do you have for teachers who are looking to incorporate more student-centered teaching but aren't really sure where to begin? So I wrote this book. It's pretty good. Zach Chase and I wrote it. You should read it. <laughs> uh, I mean, and that's, you know, I mean, on some level, yeah, I think that, you know, there's, there's enough out there now. I mean, our book is Building School 2.0, 
how to create the schools we need. It's a, you know, it's very much a sort of why we should do the work. There's a wonderful book that another one of our teachers wrote and sort of compiled of the SLA way of doing things. And it's called Authentic Inquiry in the Digital Age by Loris Bahoma. Um, but you also have, um, you know, any number of texts that are out there right now that are really good about like, how do you build more authentic inquiry into your schools. If you look at the work that John Spencer is doing with his education podcasts and things like that, he's doing great work. Um, obviously, the classics, you know, like looking at the work that Deborah Meyer and Ted Sizer have been writing, you know, wrote about for the last 30 or 40 years, looking at bell hooks and teaching to transgress, looking at Paulo Freire. I mean, like there's a, there is now a, I mean, there's a large body of work out there about, you know, like we need to be scholars of our profession. Um, the other thing you can do is we're not hosting it this year because, you know, pandemic, but we host a conference every year, uh, the weekend in between the conference playoffs and the Super Bowl in Philly at our school called Educon. And we take apart all these ideas in really big ways. So I think that's um, a great way to do it. Uh, you know, I've got the blog, practicaltheory.org. I haven't written on it much lately, but there's 15 years of writing there. So like, by all means, uh, I think there's a lot of ways to do this work thoughtfully. Um, and there's a lot of good people out there doing it in different ways. And with SLA, like, you know, we've published a lot of this stuff and like we've written it down and we've, you know, for the, you know, for the price of a book, you can learn a lot about how to do it. And, you know, and again, and normally I would say, come visit us, obviously not right now, but like, <laughs> uh, you know, there's lots of ways that we've tried to make sure that we're giving away the secret sauce in many, many ways and, and trying to help other people. And if you're part of a school community that wants to do this better and like is looking for professional development and is looking to transform your schools, you should reach out to Diana at inquiryschools.org and talk to her about coming in and doing some work with your school community because we've done that in a lot of places and uh, Diana's very, very, very good at it. Um, so there are lots of pathways to the work. Um, the first is like, it's the same thing we tell the kids, be curious and ask better questions and start there and then look for the resources that like help you come to the answers that you need, right? And I think one of the things that's really important, like even with our book that Zach and I wrote, it's not, it's not a recipe, right? Like it's not that do this, then this happens, do this, then this happens. Um, our book is structured to ask a lot of questions and to, to come at it with some of these sort of small answers we've come to. But then every chapter ends with a series of next questions you should ask yourself. Um, because it's not about our answers. It's really about sort of how do you, we came up with the answers we came up with for um, the experiences in schools that we worked in and, and started and, and did together. Um, but how the answers we came up with are going to be different depending on the soil they're planted in matters, matters a lot. Mm -hmm. I will be sure to have um, links to all of the resources that you just mentioned in the episode description. So be sure to check that out if you're listening right now and you want to learn more. Um, you know, John Spencer, my listeners know I am a mega fan of John Spencer. Um, I love Bell Hooks. Uh, Ted Sizer. So you mentioned a bunch of really great resources that I think are a great place for teachers to start. Uh, and I also love the notion of, you know, just be curious. I think that that's something I really try to embrace as an educator 
you know, I, I really, in a lot of ways, try to practice what I preach to my students. Uh, and so if you're listening right now and you want to figure out how to get started, I think that that's some really great advice. So thank you. I'm also going to be sure to have a link to your book uh, in the uh, in the episode description as well. I know you mentioned you have a blog, practicaltheory.org. Um, where else can listeners mo- learn more about you and the wonderful work that you're doing? And how can they learn more about uh, SLA? Um, we can always go to science to our website, which is sla.phillasd.org, um, which is our district website. Uh, you can read the book. You can read Larissa's book. Uh, you can read Josh Block's book. Uh, that just came out this past year, Educating for Democracy, I think it's called. I'm not getting the title exactly right, but that's close. Uh, he's another SLA teacher. Um, you can come to the conference, you can go to YouTube and look up our, you know, and look up, uh, my Ted talk, but mostly I would say, read the books, come to the school, visit the website, um, read Larissa's book. Uh, uh, you know, we've tried, like I said, we've tried to, you know, like as schools go, there's actually, if you, there, if you, somewhere on our website is a link to two really wonderful white papers that Dell Computing wrote on us. Um, there's a lot out there on us. Like for a funky little network of three schools, there's a lot of stuff out there on us. So like the Google is your friend, but I would say um, the best resource, you know, as far as like why we do what we do and how we do what we do is the combination of the book that Zach Chase and I wrote and Larissa's book. Um, those two give a pretty in-depth, between the two of them, you've got the, the why and the how in some pretty powerful detail. Um, but then also go to the website and start checking out student projects and looking at student work because that's always the most, you know, sort of amazing part of all of this is seeing how kids manifest this stuff. Awesome. I will be sure, like I said, to have everything linked in the episode description if you guys want to check that out. Um, Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. I really loved our conversation. Uh, I feel like you just had so much wonderful wisdom to share. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Have a great one. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the EdTech Classroom podcast with Chris Lehman. It was truly an honor to have him as a guest on today's show. This conversation is going to have me thinking for days, and I really hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe to my podcast, give me a five-star rating, write a review. It helps new podcasters like me so much, and I'll see you guys back here soon. Bye, friends.